I've taken my relationship with color to another level. And, and therefore the painting now looks different because, you know, when you're mixing the colors, there's always another subtlety. There's always another possibility. That's why I keep going in the studio every day because color is still surprising me. It is still doing things that I didn't know it could do or I didn't enjoy or get into. So I keep going and making these paintings because there's still a lot of ground to go into. That It's, it's like going into a new room. It's like there's a door you didn't even know about, let alone another room that you didn't know about. That's powerful. You know, that is, that's like why you get out of bed in the morning, you know? Welcome to the Cedar Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 219th episode, I'm very excited to be back and joined by Mitchell Johnson, who spoke with me from California. Of course, we talk all about his experiences in making art and studying art at Parsons and some of his life experiences living abroad in France, making paintings, travel, and his love of color and abstraction that has predominantly been explored in his paintings, which have bounced between works that are pure abstraction and those that are representational. We spend a fair bit of time talking about the studio process and how paintings are edited, and especially his love and exploration of color, which you can definitely see in the work and obviously is something that's really alluring and draws you in. And of course, if you would like to check them out for yourself, he has a new exhibition of paintings opening February 7th that runs through the 24th in Menlo Park. You can find out more information about gallery hours by visiting his Instagram page at Mitchell underscore Johnson underscore artist. And you can also receive a free PDF catalog of the show, which is really cool. You can also see his work at Mitchell Johnson Studio on Facebook and of course, MitchellJohnson.com. If you're unfamiliar with Studio Break, Studio Break is a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of artists that come on and talk all about their artwork and their stories, their histories, their experiences, and we share these right on StudioBreak.com. There are a number of episodes available, each of them with artwork as well as links to the artist's websites, and you can listen right there. If you prefer to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit StudioBreak.com. If you look on the left sidebar, you'll see links to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play. If you prefer to listen to podcasts on those platforms, be sure and check those links out. If you do want to follow on social media, be sure to visit Studio underscore Break on Instagram and at Studio Break on Twitter. You can also find our Facebook page and like us there. With those announcements out of the way, here is the interview with Mitchell. Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Mitchell Johnson. How are you today? I'm great, David. Thanks for inviting me to talk. Yeah, I'm really honored to be talking about your work. And obviously, we were just talking a little bit about our love of color and, and certainly landscape and architecture. And it's going to be exciting to kind of break down all, all sorts of stuff. So, you know, if I could first ask, uh, where, where are you calling in from today? And then, you know, we can kind of snake forward from there about early experiences with art and all sorts of good stuff. I'm in Menlo Park in California, which is a little notorious. That's where Facebook is in, in Silicon Valley. I moved here in 1990, so I've been here for quite a while. Before that, I moved around a lot. My dad was an army chaplain, and so I grew up in a lot of different places, mostly in New York and Virginia, but also there were some other places along the way. So, Relative to that idea of art, you know, in terms of growing up, was that something that the family was all about? I mean, were you, you know, really cultured in terms of music and all sorts of things? Did you know art was on your radar? Uh, that's a good question. My mom was a piano teacher and she had been a music major at school. And so I grew up, you know, hearing a lot of uh, Chopin around mm -hmm. the house. And I have come to understand that that's not necessarily normal. <laughs> and I was really lucky to have that. And, and my mom actually, she liked to draw and paint. And so she was, uh, she was making things sometimes. And my dad, he would do woodworking and stained glass. Mm -hmm. uh, some of it was just kind of assembling kits, but some of it was pretty creative. We didn't spend a lot of time going to museums or anything like that. It's not like I grew up knowing, 
you know, who Monet was or mm-hmm. talking about like the latest exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art or anything like that. But it was a it was a pretty good background for somebody who was going to, I guess, you know, start painting full time the way that I, I've done. And but also that I think really important, the schools I went to schools on military compounds, you know, mm-hmm. because my dad was an army chaplain. But what's pretty unusual is the one I went to for elementary school, first through fifth grade, was kind of like going to a diplomat school because all the kids were from around the world because their dads were taking this one year course. So I was going to school with, you know, kids from like Korea and Turkey and Germany and, and uh, you know, American kids, too, whose dads were in this course. But it was really you know, looking back, that was kind of unusual in the 70s. Uh, sure, it was sure. very it was very diverse for a public school. Well, and were there opportunities then to study art in any of those instances? Yeah, you know, we took, you know, just like everybody else in first through fifth grade, you you know, you do art projects and stuff. And, and it was really, it was already starting to manifest because when we would have like an art project that's supposed to go on for a few hours, mine would go on for like a week and it would be in the back of the classroom and, and I would be given uh, a little extra leeway to extend it and keep going. And, uh, and then when I was in junior high school in New York, I started painting like as an eighth grader, ninth grader, mm-hmm. and the, our teacher became a really close friend and I wasn't doing too well in school, but they always allowed me to come in to the art room as much as I wanted. And then I just kept painting, even though we moved away from that school I went to another high school somewhere else in Virginia and there wasn't an art program, but I kept painting usually after school or at night. So the color interest, the, the desire to make things, it, it was always there. It goes way back. Well, it's always interesting to me because I, I swear like maybe 75% of people that I talk to are talking about how difficult school was and that kind of art, you know, was this real thing that kind of pushed them forward into kind of their purpose or passion or it's always interesting to me that so many people say that. I'm sure a lot of people find that it's a a place where they can find some confidence or, or just find a purpose. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's what it was for me. It, it grounded me. But the nice thing was the way that it grounded me so that when I moved schools again at 10th grade and I kind of discovered that they, you know, they put me in a class with kids who could barely read and write. And I realized, oh, you know, that if you get a lot of D's and F's, that's what people think. <laughs> so I started to work harder. And in like 10th grade, 11th, 12th grade, I, I applied myself and, and I was still painting and everything. But, you know, I was taking physics and calculus and actually doing really well. And I sort of turned everything around. And then when I went to college in Virginia at Randolph-Macon, which is right outside of Richmond, Mm-hmm. It's a liberal arts school, so I could do a lot of things. And I took, you know, I took English, philosophy, French, German, and painting and drawing. But I also took computers and I took math and I took physics. And I got a degree in computer science and a minor in art. Mm-hmm. And um, when I finished, I was able to get a computer job. And I don't know if I've ever even mentioned this when I was getting recorded or anything, but I got a computer job and I worked for two years in D.C., and I went to art school at night at the Washington Studio School, and I kept drawing and painting and got a portfolio together so I could go to grad school at Parsons. And that's how I ended up getting my MFA. It was because of the uh, kind of like going to night school, basically. Right, right. When I quit my computer job when I was 24, I was really doing the minimum to kind of survive at that job. <laughs> I, I would close the door of my office and look at art history books and uh, – and just do as little work as possible, <laughs> get that paycheck, save it for grad school, and then go to art school at night. And so I, you know, I, I made it work. I mean, who who would ever expect to make money, you know, from being an artist? So I, sure. I had to make money, and that was how I made it for a while. And then when I went to Parsons, I didn't do any more any anything else with computers after that. I I didn't keep programming. I didn't want to keep up with all that. You know, it takes so much work to stay abreast of software and computer languages and things. And I knew that wasn't for me. So I, I mean, I started painting houses and doing construction and things like that to make money. Well, and I'm curious too, like, you know, studying at Parsons, what was that experience like? Cause I, I believe that I mentioned somewhere or read somewhere rather uh, in your bio that, you know, you kind of studied with artists that, you know, studied with Hans Hoffman. And I was very lucky to catch the end of an era, basically. So I was in the graduate school at Parsons, and that was from 1988 to 90. 
And the program was basically run by Paul Resica. And he had been a student of Hoffman. He had been in Hoffman's uh, school in Provincetown and in New York in the 50s with Wolf Kahn, who you probably know, mm -hmm. uh, the painter. And so in many ways, it was like the second generation of the Hans Hoffman School. And almost all the teachers who were coming and going, whether it was Robert De Niro Sr. or um, Leland Bell or Jane Freilicher, Nell Blaine, all the, almost everybody is coming and going at the school as a full-time faculty or assistant. Mm -hmm or visiting artist was connected to the Hoffman School. And I mean, it's really interesting, actually, because when I moved to California in 1990, right after that, there was an article in Art in America that Wolf Kahn had written about the Hoffman School. And he made me realize that all of us had been lucky if we were in that graduate program at Parsons to kind of go to the second generation of that school. And I'm curious, too, especially when you're there, I mean, is painting the biggest thing there? At Parsons, you went in every day, Monday through Friday, and from nine to five, basically, there was a model. And sometimes there was even two models. And we would take turns posing the model. And we had this closet full of fabrics and costumes. And it was kind of like you were going to school with Matisse, because you would, you would make this setup, and then everybody uh, would paint and draw, and, unless you were going off to the Met with your easel to go make a copy of a painting. You were there just painting and drawing. The teachers would take uh, each of them had a different day of the week that they came in and they would do crits. And but it was very much about working from the model. But that, you know, there's a, don't get the idea that it was at all like the New York Academy of Art where we're talking about anatomy or talking about a, like a very classical notion of what your painting or drawing should look like. There was definitely an emphasis on, you know, let's look at what you're making and then let's look at the setup over there. And so there's this it's very much about, you know, using observation and not just imagination or something. But there was a receptiveness to invention that was coming out of the observation. And and they would when they would come in to do a crit, so often there would also be some slides or a discussion of somebody in particular like Andre Duran, or maybe one day it was Matisse, and another day it could have been Velasquez. So that's where I got a lot of my attachment to this particular notion of art history that connects, you know, people like Piero della Francesca and Giotto all the way up to Corot and Courbet and then up to Manet and Monet and then, you know, to Cezanne and then into the 20th century. There's a, a really, you know, a very different like notion of art history for the for the use of painters, not art history as somebody who's not going to be making stuff, but art history as it serves people who are making paintings, making things. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Yeah, completely. So it was, there was tons of art history rolled into that studio time, but it wasn't like, okay, now we're going to stop looking at the model and stop drawing and then go to this other room and have art history. It was all, it was all rolled up together. Well, and it's so interesting to me because I, not that we're too far apart in terms of like time study, but, you know, kind of studying, you know, in the late 90s it's interesting relative to the idea of representation because i i feel like i went to school with everybody that just worked abstractly and it was all about kind of not working from life and so it's just really interesting to me to think about it relative to you know some of the experiences that i've had where very literally it's almost like an afterthought to think about kind of working representationally but then also to kind of invent from something that you're looking at or kind of developing this language and kind of having this openness to I would imagine have all your peers working in, in entirely different ways, even if they're kind of working from the same source, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that, that's that's really good. I'm glad you said that, because as much as I learned from those teachers, Paul Resica and Leland Bell and Larry Rivers, he was also there. Mm -hmm. It was also seeing everybody else's paintings happening because we weren't in cubicles. It wasn't like at Yale where everybody had a, a room or an office we were all looking at each other's work at the same time. And, and, and I've seen, I've really taken note of this, you know, kind of looking back that I learned from all those people that I was lucky enough to go to school with. And they, without question, they taught me just as much as the crit, you know, with Leland Bell or the art history that Paul Resica wanted to bring in on his day. It was seeing all these other people making paintings. I mean, everything is comparison, right? Mm-hmm. When there's a wine that you like, you're comparing it to the wine that you don't like. And when there's a painting that has color that's 
that's uh, active and interesting to you, on some level, you only know that because you've seen another painting that feels lifeless or doesn't have that that color. And so when you have a chance to paint with 14 other people in this big room and everybody's looking at this singular source, you have the opportunity to kind of, you know, compare. It, it, it's so important, you know, you know, that you're all working from the same thing and yet you're coming to these different conclusions, if that makes sense. No, completely. And and again, I liken it almost to kind of like a community that you'd have almost like in, say, like a print shop, as opposed to like, you know, you literally describe my BFA experience and most of my grad experience where everybody's kind of like, you know, divided off, you know, so like you have to go seek those conversations out. You rarely have that instance where everybody is kind of in that same room to be able to kind of always be talking about work that's going on at the same time. Yeah, I I don't, I can't even imagine why you would have a school like that, <laughs> like the way that Yale was doing that or because you're going to spend the rest of your life doing that, working on your own and then having to make an effort to go and contact other people or to get feedback or to, you know, share ideas. And I mean, really, at the end of the day, it's up to you, right? You're the only one that can make your painting. You're the only one that can care enough about, is it going to uh, become special or is that one worth keeping and that one worth covering up? You can't really have anybody else give you that that answer. You have to come up with that. And well, one of my teachers at, at Parsons, he liked to say that you're here to recognize the questions that you'll spend your life trying to answer. He's like, we're not here to give you the answers. We're here to help you find out what are the questions that might be good for you to spend your career as a painter trying to answer. And I think when you make a painting, you make a painting to to find out if that painting's possible. So if I'm making a painting of Maine or I'm making a painting of Italy or Singapore, for that matter, where I just was, it's not that I'm at all convinced that I that I found a composition or something that is, you know, definitely going to work. I make the painting to find out and it doesn't always work. So, you know, there's some you scrape down, there's some you throw away, there's some you cover up, there's some that you rework and then it goes somewhere else. But that's really different, you know, from somebody who's learning like a kind of academic realism where they know what the painting should look like before they even started. Mm -hmm. And then and then they know they're finished because now the painting looks like what they knew it was supposed to look like. My teacher, Paul Resica, had this quote that we go to the studio to do what we don't know. And, and that's more the way I see it. No, that's interesting, and it makes a lot of sense, too, because you kind of keep having that question, that searching, as opposed to uh, maybe just kind of retreading the same ground over and over, too. Yeah, and that the painting isn't about craft. It's not about, you know, oh, look at how well I can paint. I mean, you don't go to museums to see how well somebody else paints. You go to museums to, to see something special or to be moved. I mean, you you know, even if uh, when you go to a concert, if, if you go hear a band, you, you go to be moved, right? The, you don't have any problem saying, oh, I was moved or I was impacted or I didn't like it. I, it didn't interest me. I've always been intrigued. Why do people think that paintings are in museums just because they're, um, they, they're dazzling you with their technique or something? I mean, yeah, there's no question that Velasquez paints like, in a way that most people can't paint, but that's not really what separates him from his peers. I mean, there's something else being communicated that is, what, is why it's there. Mm -hmm. for all of us to see. So there's, I think there's a lot of confusion right now with this idea of realism, especially with social media and Instagram and all that stuff. And everybody's trying to dazzle other people with, oh my God, look at how well I can paint my girlfriend and look at the eyelashes and look at how recognizable she is, you know, and it's really shallow, you know, that's not, I mean, painting is, is trying to talk about the human experience. It's, talk, it's trying to talk about, you know, stuff that's a, that goes a lot deeper than that. Well, and it's always those paintings that you don't expect that you see or something that you come across where, for me anyways, I, I love going to museums and just being surprised by something that I didn't realize was was there. Or, you know, especially when the economy of something is so, looks so effortless, you know, in terms of the way somebody makes something where you're just kind of like shocked and kind of like, you know, in this presence, you know? I, I totally agree. I had a really nice studio visit with Robert De Niro Sr. Uh, around the time of the big Velazquez show in New York. And uh, we were talking about Velazquez and talking about paintings that looked like they were hard to make. Mm -hmm. And he said that, just like what you're saying, he said that, I don't want to see the effort. He, he goes, even if it was really hard for you to make it, I don't want to see that. That's not what I'm there for. That's, that's not what's going to move me. And, you know, he was obsessed with Matisse. And I... I just I think that the, this whole idea of realism 
you know, at one point it was, it was like, you're either painting abstractly or you're painting representationally. And, and then that became not so significant as a, as a debate or a discussion. And then, uh, you know, someone like Gerhard Richter could paint basically anything and it always comes across that it's his, right? Mm-hmm. He sort of reminded everybody that all that matters is that you, you try to be yourself and you paint something that you think is special. And then whatever's going to happen is going to happen. You don't know how other people are going to take that. But it's not at all about ultimately about your, um, you know, like how good you are. Mm-hmm. I, I really think it's more about is there anything worth talking about? And do you have anything to say? I mean, that's, it's a, I think that's a more relevant question. So to kind of bring it back to this, you know, 1990, you've, you finished school. What kind of things were you making at the time in terms of your paintings? Cause it, you know, seems like there's been a number of different explorations that you've kind of been, you know, pursuing obviously since then and things always change. And, but just to kind of give us a little bit of an idea of where you were at at the time, could you kind of describe a little bit of what your work was, was about? I was definitely painting from the model. And so I was making some figure paintings that probably looked a little bit like sort of Matisse or Fairfield Porter. But then I was also painting abstractly. I I kind of staked out this tiny little piece of the big room we were all in. And I started making these uh, abstractions that were, I guess, kind of like really weak, Devon Corner, de Kooning inspired abstractions that were uh, loose and had kind of dark uh, drawing in them. And I was wondering, I, w- I was trying to explore like how you cut up the picture plane, the rectangle, you know, different ways of getting to the edges. And it, it was just, it was just about trying to, to see whether or not, like how strongly I felt about the mark making and to what extent I wanted my paintings to be representational, I think. It was very intuitive. It, w- it wasn't like a cerebral exploration. It was an intuitive thing. I had always done that. I had always been making these paintings, these, I guess, ultimately abstract paintings when I was in high school. But you have to understand that I was never happy with them. I mean, I never made one that, that felt at all like it went where I, where I hoped it would go. It was just, it was very frustrating. It was very upsetting. They never came close to what I what I imagined they could be or what I hoped that they would be. And then the ones I was making at Parsons, some of them started to feel like I was getting somewhere and they were kind of upset that I was making them (laughs) and then they didn't really want me doing that. It wasn't at all like a good idea for me to be making these other paintings in that room and off on the side. So it was good that I hadn't done it the whole two years I was there. It only mostly happened in the last few months. But I, I guess something else that's worth talking about is that I mean, that Parsons thing, which basically ended around 1990 when I graduated, that was extraordinary, you know, to be able to go to this school where you have this model and then you have access to all these museums and you're seeing all these other really genuine, dedicated people working really hard and you're seeing what they're making. And then you have this older generation who knew everything about art history and had studied with Hans Hoffman and all of them were serious full-time painters. What a mixture, you know, of really, really intelligent, sophisticated, genuine people. And then you're walking outside of the studio at Union Square where we had our our class and you're surrounded by all the galleries, you know, and you're going to you're going to walk home to your apartment and you're going to pass a show by Frank Stella or you're going to see all these different exhibits in Soho. Looking back, it couldn't have been the more perfect situation, you know, for somebody who's in their 20s and, and has really fallen in love with painting to get exposed to everything. And I didn't go to a lot of openings. You know, I wasn't there. Like this is around the time that Sandro Kia was becoming a really big deal with Enzo Cucchi and all the the Roman painters that were being brought to New York in the early 90s, uh, late 80s. I didn't go to their openings in Soho. I was sort of walking by the galleries and stuff and seeing that stuff. But I, I wasn't looking at that stuff that closely, but it was happening, you know, at the same time that I was, you know, a 24-year-old art student. All that stuff was going on. And then I don't know how much you know about the work of Larry Rivers, but uh, Larry Rivers, you know, was really important in the art world and, and was doing some really creative stuff and was very different from my other teachers. But we had access to him and he would tell us crazy stories about the art world and the big Larry Rivers uh, autobiography that came out around 1994, 95, something like that. I read that 
And I knew almost everybody in that book because of my teachers at Parsons and all the people that they introduced us to. So that was, that was extraordinary. Well, and so what brought you out to California? So this is just the oddest thing. My brother was living in Palo Alto and he met somebody who worked in the studio of Sam Francis. Mm-hmm. He called me and he said, Hey, why don't you move to California? And I, I'd finished at Parsons and I had been uh, staying in France off and on painting just by myself in this little village. And I didn't really have to be anywhere. And so in the fall of 1990, I moved to Palo Alto because my brother found me this part-time job to work at Sam Francis's uh, studio slash house that was in Palo Alto. And I didn't really know if I should do that. I didn't know if it was a good idea. I mean, all I had to do was come out here for a few months or even a year and I could have left, but I didn't really want to leave New York. I wanted to get on Saul LeWitt's wall drawing team or maybe try to work for Frank Stella in the studio. And, but that was the, that was the first, that was the, you know, desert storm. That was the first war with Iraq in Iraq. The economy was horrible. The art world was really slow. I actually called Saul LeWitt on the phone and I said, I don't know what to do. I have this chance to move to California and work for Sam Francis. And I, I really want to stay. I don't want to move. And, you know, am I going to be able to get more work with you or what do you think I should do? And, and he's like, you know, move to California. I think it's a really good idea. And so in many ways, he encouraged me to do that. And, and so I came to California and I tried it and, and things went well. But I kind of kept moving around. Through the 90s, I was bouncing back and forth between California and New York and France and Italy and, and living, you know, on very little. I would just, I would occasionally sell some paintings and, you know, I had like $1,000 in the bank and, and I could live on, on very little and just paint and, and do odd jobs sometimes. And so um, I didn't really settle in California until 98 when my wife and I got married and that's when I really stayed sort of put the roots down in California. Well, it seems like, again, all that travel has got to be pretty, you know, life experience building, you know, in terms of also like what you're seeing and what you're able to kind of put into your work. I would imagine, again, if you had just stayed in a cubicle somewhere, <laughs> you know, never never being adventurous, I mean, I would imagine that absolutely kind of contributed to everything as well. Oh, yeah. I was, I mean, I was having a great time. If you have a tolerance for risk and uncertainty and then you can move around the world and paint. It's it's remarkable. This is before, you know, cell phones and everything like that. And right. <laughs> I wrote letters to people and they wrote back to me. And I I got to know my wife through all the letters that we wrote back and forth. And I, I was really, really lucky. But, but, you know, sometimes people talk about talent and things like that. And I never felt like I was talented. I just felt like I was hardworking and determined and and just really in love with painting and color. And I knew that I had to do this. And the world was a little more simple and you could live on, on not very much money if that's what you wanted to do. But I, you know, I was getting encouragement too. I had paintings in a gallery in California and the gallery would, you know, sometimes sell something and they would wire me money. It didn't feel like I was completely adrift. You know, the, the knowing that my paintings were, that people were waiting to show them, that was nice, you know? So I would go to Europe for a few months but I knew there was somebody waiting for me to come back with this, you know, roll of paintings and maybe have a show or something like that. So it wasn't as if the, you know, the funny thing is the galleries and the shows, those were giving me structure so that all this other freewheeling felt, felt like it was the right thing to do. Well, and so what happened when you decided to kind of then, you know, stick, stick some roots then, if you will, in, in California and stay there and, you know, kind of be there for, for a chunk after you got married? Did things kind of shift in terms of your paintings or always curious what those big kind of moments are that kind of maybe shift people forward or change up their work. But I, it sounds like too, at the very least, you're very committed to kind of keep working and, and keep making throughout all this time. So I, I've always been painting, I guess, abstractly as well as from observation, but all of it feels abstract to me. All of it feels like it's just about the colors and the shapes coming together on this two-dimensional plane, and either they're doing something special or mysterious or they're not. There's different degrees to which they are recognizable, and, and some of them are just basically big blocks of color. But once I started to settle down in California, I could start to make bigger paintings. And I guess that was the main thing that shifted in starting maybe like around 2000, and then certainly when my son was like around three around 2004, I got a studio in Palo Alto that was pretty big. 
And I started making larger paintings. And then, you know, I had a place to make them. I had a place to store them. And I guess the scale of the paintings is one of the main changes that happened once I settled down. The, the really big thing that happened was uh, in 2005, I was at the Morandi Museum in Bologna in Italy. And I'd been going to Italy a lot, but and I would go to, to the Morandi Museum every time. I would uh, either drive to Bologna or fly into Bologna just so I could see his paintings. They had been really important to me for a good while. But I went to the Morandi Museum in 2005 and and I walked in and there were all these Joseph Albers paintings there. And I was just like, what, what the hell is going on? You know, this is what, what's going on. And, and I, I liked Albers work, but I, I hadn't really been looking at it that much. And then suddenly there is this wall of Joseph Albers, Giorgio Morandi, Albers, Morandi. And they had, the museum in Bologna had done this big exchange with the Albers museum up in Germany in Batra, Germany. And so they took a bunch of Albers paintings down to Italy and they took some more Andy paintings up to Germany and had these two shows. And, and all of a sudden I had been trying to make uh, a shift in my paintings and, and, and use much larger, more distinct areas of color. And I come across this show and the, and the show, it was just unbelievable, the timing, because it was like this uh, little message that, oh yes, this is right. You, you're, or this is right for you. You're doing what's right for you. You got to keep going in this direction because if you combine the two of them together, not like you take Morandi and Albers and put them in a blender, you know, and like mm -hmm. create another recipe out of the two of them. But if you kind of take the, the sensibilities of the two of them and you put them together, it felt like that that's what I wanted to be more about. I, I had always felt that my paintings were moving and it never felt like I was staying in one place. But at that moment, they were moving in a much more distinct way and, and at a much faster pace maybe and uh the encouragement i got from seeing those two guys together at that moment was uh was tremendous it was absolutely i guess almost like a crossroads really in in what i've been doing and everything since 2005 goes back to that moment and even the first time that i went to cape cod to truro where so many of my paintings are now kind of based on all these people, you know, love my Cape Cod paintings and own them or buy them or see them. And, and I understand that when they see those paintings, they think about New England and they think about Cape Cod or they experience something very powerful for them. But all of those Cape Cod paintings or Truro paintings to me are about that exhibit of Morandi and Albers together. Because a month after I saw that show is when I made my first trip to Cape Cod to work at this in this town called Truro. And so every time I go to Truro, it's about going back to what that show meant to me. It's not so much about what does Cape Cod mean to me. It's more like, you know, what does Morandi mean to me, if that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. And I think relative to the work, I'm, you know, you kind of describe, you know, being able to kind of do these large kind of paintings. And I know that I've seen from your Instagram that there are paintings that you'll work you know, kind of on site. So I'm, I'm really curious if that's still something that, you know, really fuels, you know, both your, you know, plein air work or kind of paintings that are started on site or how that relationship works to studio paintings. What's that relationship like, I guess, between plein air and in the studio? You probably just saw those photos from when I was in Singapore a couple of days ago, and I actually took canvases with me. I didn't take uh, any paint with me, but I took canvases that I could take outside and make these very, very simple light drawings on them and um, position things where I want them to be within the uh, rectangle of the of the canvas. And I'll come back and I'll work on a painting using that drawing. And I might go into it, you know, within a couple of days of being home, or it might even sit there for quite a while. Like it could sit there for months. I really enjoy when I can go and work from life or work right in front of the thing that has some intrigue, you know, because of its shape or its weird scale or weird, unusual color. But I can also take photos and I, I take good photos after all these years. And with all the cameras getting better and better, I can use the camera to to take photos that feel like very much a drawing, you know. Mm -hmm. So the being outside and the being inside it's just a, it's just a question of when when I can work outside I will or on location I will and I'll enjoy it but if I can't it's not a big deal I I'm still going to ultimately make the painting 
in the studio because I want to see the color really objectively or really just really well. You know, I want the painting on the on the white wall of my studio with the the overhead natural light and not a whole lot of stuff around it. I want to be able to see it really clear how it's behaving. And if you're looking at the painting outside, you know, then all the stuff is around it. It's it's a little bit harder to see what it's really going to look like when it's on the wall. But all of this said, I spent, you know, almost every other day of 1990s painting outside, standing at an easel, whether it was in Italy or in France or in California or in New York. I was out there all the time painting and drawing from life. So whatever has happened, if there's anything I know about color or anything that I've figured out or if I made any progress, it definitely goes back to all that observational work. And so even when I'm I'm not working from life now, there's still that sort of underpinning, you know, and, and all of that time that I was outside. So I would never suggest to anybody that you don't do a lot of work from observation or that you don't need to be outside. But I, I definitely don't like that sort of sentimental notion of plain air painting that's somehow connected to, I don't know, people gathering in groups and, you know, every Sunday working together. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's it's loaded. It's really loaded with this very a little bit more superficial notion about, you know, what what's going on when people are making a painting and, and you know, what the intent is. And I don't want to sound judgmental, but I definitely don't want to get anybody to misunderstand that, that I have some sort of affinity, you know, for plein air painting. And sometimes I use that hashtag on Instagram just out of, uh, out of kind of, um, not to make fun of it, but just to kind of say, hey, maybe it's uh, not what you think it is, you know? Well, it's interesting, too, because those are the instances I'm sure you have when you're working outside, those people that randomly come up to you. And one anecdotal story that I just love is, I, you know, I was a student at Chautauqua, and I remember the um, landscape painting teacher there, Stanley Lewis, had literally built himself like a painting booth to literally <laughs> to just kind of be able to kind of work, you know, in the landscape, but not be distracted from these random people. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. No, I know about the like spaceship, whatever thing that he's inside of. And yeah, you know, actually you mentioned Stanley. That's a really, put it this way. You're, I'm, you know, here we are, we barely know each other and you're trying to get me to talk about, you know, how I tick and stuff like that. Here's a great example. So you can understand a little bit better about how I got to this point or, or how I work. I was seeing this girl a little bit who was at Chautauqua and I was in France and she's at Chautauqua writing me letters. And she's hanging out with all these painters and she's, you know, taking Stanley Lewis's class. But th this is a little before you. This is more like 1991, mm -hmm. 1990. And I was thinking about this the other day because there I was in France and she's writing letters to me and I'm all alone. I mean, this village I'm in doesn't even have a cafe. It doesn't have a grocery <laughs> store. And, you know, there's like one bus a day that goes into Aix-en-Provence, which isn't far away, but... I can't get to it. It's like a three mile walk. And all I'm doing is, is painting and I'm cooking like rice and beans and spaghetti so that I can live on $400 a month. And I'm, you know, reading books and I'm looking at art history and I'm making paintings and I'm going through these ups and downs. And, you know, one day I'm convinced that I should be here. This is really going well. And the next day I'm thinking about like committing suicide, you know, and because it's just really hard, it, you got to have a lot of bad days for the good days to come along. You have to have a lot of time to burn. And when the when things were going bad, I didn't have somebody in the cubicle next door. I didn't have Stanley Lewis to pat me on the back. I was over there and I didn't know what I was getting into. I just felt like that's what I needed to do. And so I did it, but it was really damn hard, you know? And, and looking back, I would never tell anybody to do that. I would never recommend my son do that if he wanted to paint. And if you want to do it, you should do it. But do, you should never expect anyone to give you advice. Like, that's a good idea. That's not a good idea. When you, when you look in the art world and you see all these different people's careers and paths, you, you read about what they did. You read about their biography. You look at their work. And you find these little kernels of truth that apply to you. And, and you listen to them and then you make your choices. You can't, they can't say it to you. You know, you can't ask them directly, really. Should I keep doing this? Do you think I'm a good enough painter? Should I dedicate my life to this? You have to solve that for yourself. You know, you have to, if you can't find that on your own, then you probably shouldn't be doing this, you know? No, absolutely. 
That totally makes sense. And again, because I want to talk about some specific paintings, I think that might be kind of interesting. Maybe that could be something that gives us a little bit more focus. You know, you're talking about some of these uh, paintings in Turo and, you know, kind of going through your Instagram, you know, there's one that kind of struck me, this uh, North Turo Rose from 2018. And we were talking a little bit about, you know, this relationship working on site, but then also, you know, being able to pull from all of these experiences, being outdoors and kind of painting. I'm curious you know, like a, a painting like that in terms of color and experience, is that something that you kind of pulled from then in terms of being able to talk about a specific time of day or, you know, how does, how does a painting get set up in terms of, you know, you see an experience that you're like, oh, I want to distill this. I want to, this is worth it. I, I wouldn't say it's so much an experience as it is in particular, those Truro rooftops feel like a scaffolding where I can set up any colors and the architecture, the really simple architecture of that, that collection of cottages has so many possibilities that I've painted them all over and over and over again. And every time I, I paint them, they become something else. Each one is another attempt to see, oh, could I, could I possibly make another one? Has this thing run its course? You know, and, and some of them don't work. So I destroy some of them. I scrape them down. I rework them. But I, I don't I'm not sure that I like that idea of describing them as a an attempt to uh, replicate a moment or to talk about a moment or to have a like a sense of place or a time of day because they really they either seem mysterious or they don't. They either feel like this unexpected collection of colors doing something interesting or they don't. And like the rooftop on those cottages it doesn't really matter what it is literally because it is changing all day long. You know, that color of that rooftop is, is all over the place, you know, depending on the color of the, the light or the time of day. So in many ways, maybe one rooftop is um, the color that you saw at a night, at, at a night view. And then the, another side of a building could be something you saw at a morning view. They don't even have to be about one time a day. They could be a collage. And so after painting them for so long, you know, because it all goes back to maybe like around 2005, 2006. There's one really early one that's in the museum in Provincetown. You know, I see it in reproduction sometimes and I think, wow, that one especially, I was making it just to try to see, is there enough here to work with? Are there enough colors and shapes that this painting could possibly be viable as, as like a complete thought? And then I made it and I felt pretty good about it. And then I made another one and I made another one and I made another one and every one of them just kept becoming different and it's still going on because there's still something there that allows me to find a new place. And so that's really what it's about. It's not about a place or a time of day. It's about a new place. And I don't mean newness, you know, just like, oh, wow, it's exciting. It's new. I mean, new as in I've taken my relationship with color to another level and and therefore the painting now looks different because you know when you're mixing the colors there's always another subtlety there's always another possibility that's why i keep going in the studio every day because color is still surprising me it is still doing things that i didn't know it could do or i didn't enjoy or get into so i keep going and making these paintings because there's still a lot of ground to go into that it's, it's like going into a new room. It's like there's a door you didn't even know about, let alone another room that you didn't know about. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. You know, that is, that's like why you get out of bed in the morning, you know? As I'm looking over your work, you'll find like, for example, you know, there's this painting of this super saturated green table. So I don't know if that's something that you're kind of coming across and you're seeing this table and then thinking about, you know, like the color possibilities or, and again, it's not, place that I want to kind of prescribe something. I'm just, you know what I mean? I'm trying to think about that process because it seems just so interesting. And obviously that, that sense of color is just so powerful. I had a show in New York in 2006, I think it was. And, and it was a lot of paintings that were not that big, but there was one huge painting of this yellow picnic table. And I was not at all sure that you could use a picnic table to make a serious painting, let alone a yellow picnic table <laughs> to make a serious painting. And I really made that painting to try to decide, you know, could you use the picnic table to cut up that canvas, like to, you know, to organize the canvas or to create really interesting shapes? It was incredible because when I made that painting of the yellow picnic table, 
something powerful felt so good about this is really yellow. This is a really interesting yellow. And look at how more interesting the yellow is now with these greens behind it. You know, because anything could be behind the yellow table. It could have been a concrete patio. It could have been a green patio. It could have been a red patio. It could have been a blue sky at some edge of the table. It just felt like it was very free. Again, it was like a scaffolding, right? And so I made that one yellow table and the gallery sold it to somebody and a lot of people talked about it. And it was kind of distracting actually, because then, you know, the table and the whole thing became this conversation outside of me. But some time goes by and then it, it felt neutral again, where I could just go back into it as a way to explore something. And so I made some more. And then a bunch of years went by and I was somewhere and I was looking at some picnic tables and I thought, man, I still love those shapes. I just love that really simple possibility of parking all these colors, which could be any colors, on this stuff. This is what's interesting is because I got really into these big abstract paintings for a while. And now I've kind of come back around to painting stuff, which is mostly architecture or really simple things like picnic tables water towers, a lot of things where there's something going on with the scale and that, and that the scale is not, we're not distracted by it, right? You don't get too involved when you see those water towers in New York. You don't think about, oh, that's so weird that it's so tiny from where I am. It's like the eraser on a pencil. And yet that water tower is so big that we could actually get inside and swim inside of it. You just look at it, right? You just enjoy its raw, simple shape. Same thing with the picnic tables. And same thing with those cottages in Cape Cod. And the same thing with these weird sort of farm buildings that they have in northern Italy and in Tyrol and in Austrian Tyrol. And, and then I start to see this thread of there's so many things that I use in my paintings where the scale doesn't seem to be that critical, where we don't get that involved in it, whether I paint it as something that's huge or I paint it as something really tiny in the background. I feel very free for these things to become any color that they need to be. And so the possibility of them going anywhere in terms of color and anywhere in terms of how they are lit. So you, you see, ultimately, it's like I'm taking all of these things that I've, that I've been attracted to, and they're, they're like components of a still life that I get to assemble in any way I want to have shapes and colors that I find to be special. Does that, does that make more sense now about what I'm doing? To totally, totally. So they're very conceptual. I mean, they're really conceptual. It's sort of like if you see Richard Serra on Instagram and then you go stand inside of that Richard Serra sculpture or installation, they're really different experiences, right? So different. I mean, maybe it's exciting to see it on Instagram, but then to go and stand inside of it, I don't have any problem with them saying that they're both really exciting, but I don't want anybody to confuse them as being the same thing because they're very different experiences. And I think what painting does that's still really relevant is that it reminds you that, you know, don't, don't like sand down the edges of how complex your visual life is and, and confuse the way a Matisse looks on Instagram or on your computer screen with how crazy complex it is when you see it in, the, in person, when you go to a museum and when you set aside time. So in many ways, what I'm trying to do with my paintings is I'm trying to stay in touch with how profound our visual experience is and our, our visual sense is. I'm trying to stay in touch with it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to even know it better with every day that goes by, I want to know it even more. And I'm sort of nudging people to, I think, to pay more attention to that because, you know, our visual lives are getting, they're kind of getting dulled down because, I mean, everywhere you go, everybody's just looking at their phone. Nobody looks at anything anymore, right. whether it's another person or the thing that's in front of them. Like everybody's probably walking down the street, missing the love of their life because everybody's got their face in that <laughs> effing phone, you know? And I mean, all this stuff, everything that's around you, you know, the fruit tree in your backyard, like the color of your wife's new sweater, it is profound shit and everybody's missing out on it, you know? And painting is reminding you because when you see a painting in life and it's like a person versus when you see a painting on a phone that is kind of like maybe just knowing the person's name and not actually meeting them, 
painting is this thing that may still like nudge people to be awake. No, I think that makes sense. Kind of go back to that idea of, you know, seeing things in person or in a museum. I mean, they really do move you, you know, you feel like you're in this presence of something, you know, especially for a painting that you keep coming back to, you know, or like I'm assuming too, because you're, you're all your trips, you know, eventually it'll bring you back to some museum or some place where you're seeing something and kind of back in this space and just being wowed, you know? Oh yeah. I go, every time I go to Paris, I go to the Corot paintings. Uh, the, there's a gallery on the top of the Louvre where it's a room full of Corot paintings. And it's usually pretty quiet because not that many, not that, not that many people look at Corot. And every time I see his paintings, I see something new in them. I see another section or another kind of movement or note of color or shape that it's like this place that I always check in with every year or two. And the increased appreciation that I have for his work and the way that I see it differently every time to me is some sort of proof, I guess, or encouragement that I'm still, you know, heightening my ability to see well. I, I just think that uh, you have to have things to compare to because that's that's all we do. We compare all the time in order to understand, you know, light and dark and good and bad and high and low. It's all, we don't really understand the world without being able to compare and recognize things. Doing work with visual stuff is, is a way that you, that you know how to see better. And when you know how to see better, your life has a whole lot more meaning. It has a whole lot more complexity. That resonates with me completely. You talked a little bit about like this, not always a high success rate for every single painting. I'm curious what the editing process is like then in terms of your studio, in terms of, you know, like when you decide to wind up scraping something out or, you know, I noticed a number of paintings that'll take a couple of years. Is that something that you'll wind up going back to or just, you know, a painting's not working and you just alter it entirely and turn it into something that's entirely different? Oh yeah, sometimes... uh like I, I had a painting yesterday that I just took off the stretchers and sliced and, and threw away. And, but I also had some paintings that I work on top of and they, you know, they become something totally different. I mean, really, there's almost anything is possible. I, I made a huge painting of these buoys from Maine. Those really, really kitschy, like kind of awful striped buoys that they use to mark the lobster traps. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, they're kind of, there's something just really hideous about them, but there's also something really beautiful or, or intriguing about them. And I had a, an abstract painting that I even showed and almost sold to somebody. And I took it out and I put these giant buoys on top of it, like massive buoys, like the size. This is, so a buoy that's normally, you know, like 18 inches long, I made it like five feet long and put it into this huge abstract painting. And it just... You know, I, I couldn't have told you 10 years ago I was going to do that. And I, I sure as hell didn't know I was going to do that when I made that painting. And then I even tried to sell it and show it. And then I ended up keeping it and then sticking this buoy on top of it later. But it, it felt really exciting and it felt really dangerous and kind of crazy. And that doesn't mean I'm, I'm going to do it again next week, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't really know what's going to happen for sure week to week. Like yesterday I started, even though I'm just back from Singapore and I have these amazing compositions that I was very excited about. I started working on this painting of, of Maine yesterday. And it's something that I've been thinking about making really for like four years now. I think it is since I was in that spot where I had seen this one situation of these two buildings and this boat. And, and I, you know, I'd taken a photo. So I have the photo and I look at it every now and then. And, and sometimes I bump into the image when I'm looking through like a, like a file of photos on my computer. And, and I get back from Singapore and I think I'm going to make these paintings from Singapore. And then I find myself making this painting basically of this composition from Maine. <laughs> and that, that kind of sums it up. I mean, you know, I have people like writing to me a lot about, oh, I saw that painting. I want to buy a painting like that. And, and sometimes they write at just the right time. And I think, oh, I, you know, I want to go back to that painting or to that composition. And, you know, maybe they want to buy something that's sold, but I'm equally interested in it at this moment. And I make another one. And then I let them know a few weeks later, oh, you know, I have another painting like that. You have any interest? And so on top of everything that I'm thinking about and working on, you know, I'm also getting emails from people that are saying, oh, I want this or I want that, or is that still available? And there's no question. I mean, that is involved in, you know, we're, we've been talking about a lot of things, but there's, there's also this public thing going on where people are reaching out to me and, 
you know, I, I can't pretend that I, I didn't see those hundred paintings from Truro sell in the last five years. I mean, they, you know, I, I, you can't forget that kind of stuff. It, sometimes it's distracting, but it's, it's part of it. You know, that pays for me to keep doing this every day. And, and so there, that's an aspect of it too. Uh, but it all works out, you know, because I end up in the studio and I mix a lot of colors and I see a lot of things and I get better at seeing, and that, that's what this was all about, you know? Well, and this might be just for painters out there, but are you like a purist when it comes to particular brands of things? Like you only use this type of white or is it all over the board? No, no. Some of it's gambling. Some of it is, uh, um, I used Utrecht actually for a while until they started, I think they've changed a lot of things, but for years I used some of the, the Utrecht, the Utrecht like cadmiums. And I mean, I've tested a lot of colors by this point. And if I ever found any that had, you know, uh, like a poor paint film or something that wasn't very strong, then I just stopped using those. But I think the main thing is you got to know, you know, you can thin paint to the point where it will work, but then it'll flake off a year later, or you could use zinc white Mm -hmm. and then, oh shit, I just found out that zinc white when it's really dry in two years will, you know, shatter. It's not so much brands. It's more, how do you use the paint? You know, the application, what kind of mediums, things like that that make it strong so that it's permanent. And, but I work with oil almost all the time. I don't use acrylic. I don't really know much about how acrylic works. And I sometimes use gouache when I'm traveling. I use turpentine. I real I use real turpentine. I don't think mineral spirits is good because it makes a weak paint film. I don't know why I just imagine just like this massive, massive, like glass table palette with just all these piles of colors for some reason. I don't know. Yeah. I'm huge, you know? <laughs> my, my palette is a huge, table basically on top of a gurney a hospital gurney you know those things that they wheel people around sure sure it's a gurney that belonged to uh, nathan Oliveira, and when he passed away i bought the gurney from his son and it and it was something that nathan used to wheel his sculptures around in his studio and and it became my uh my giant palette which is kind of cool so every time i push it around i think about nate that's very cool you know we've talked a bit about you know, painting and the the process in the studio. I'm curious what it's like in terms of getting your work out there. I know that you are very active on Instagram and that you have some kind of working relationship, or I don't know how it works with the New York Times. Um, Maybe you could talk a little about, you know, how you get your work out there and exhibiting and, and things like that. You know, I started working with the New York Times in 2012 and and then I kind of left the art world, you know, I mean, I had a long time ago, I had a show on 57th Street in New York, and I used to show in Los Angeles and in San Francisco. And I sort of left that world in the recession in 2008. Most of the galleries never really recovered. I mean, unless you were David Hockney, you know, the gallery world never came back. The auction world did. I found these other ways of reaching people and it started to work. And so I just kept doing it. And so I, I just the little bit of gallery affiliations that I had, they just kind of faded away and, and there isn't any anymore. There, there's nothing. It's just me and the New York times and, uh, and a little bit now I'm working with the wall street journal. So, and is that something where they'll, you know, con- is that like a regular feature in terms of like how they contact you or do you have like Liberty in terms of what you're sending them or they pick stuff or maybe, maybe not super um, important, but I'm just curious, you know how that, yeah, no, I mean, I imagine your generation doesn't get these Sunday New York times, but (laughs) um, there's still a lot of people who do like about 900,000 people around the country get the Sunday New York times and, and the New York times magazine. There's a little ad with my painting about every other week now. And so that that's it. They, people send me an email and they either like the painting in the ad or made them think about something else. And I send them a PDF catalog and then we talk about what they want and they send me a check and I ship them the painting. What a beautiful relationship. You know, I would imagine it gives you this, this freedom to keep traveling and, and just make it focusing on making and living. It's incredible. I mean, I'm living the dream. It's, it's amazing. There's no, there's not a single person who's ever done that. Somebody from the wall street journal, actually a writer called me like two years ago or something when the Frank Stella, big Frank Stella exhibit was at the Whitney in New York. And Frank was just sort of popping up at the museum every now and then and surprising people and talking to them and saying, so what do you, what do you think of that? And he would just show up, you know, cause he lived like around the corner and, and this woman from the wall street journal called me 
and she said, I want to talk to you about something. And, and she wanted to ask me if I had been to the show and seen Frank because she found something online about how I knew Frank Stella. And, and I was like, oh, that's so weird. I thought you were calling to ask me something else. And, <laughs> and, and she said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, you know, I'm a painter. I'm an artist. And I thought you were calling because you wanted to ask me about how I'm doing this thing outside of the art world that nobody's been doing and, you know, selling my paintings basically in a way that nobody's ever done. And she's like, no, no, it's not about you. It's about Frank Stella. And, and it, but it was, I was like, I, I just, I thought that maybe uh, somebody was finally going to get interested in writing something about this pretty unusual project that I created. It was just kind of strange. And then I started to work with the Wall Street Journal, like right after that, because something else had, had started to come along and I thought I would try working with their magazine. And it's really good, you know, because galleries, they, you know, they want 10 paintings that you made and then they want 10 more that are the same if they sold them. And, uh, you know, if, if that's what you want to do, that's great. But if you want to make 10 paintings and then make 10 different ones a year later, then maybe that doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. Not to mention that they pay a lot of attention to you, you know, for a month or something. And then they're thinking about everybody else. And then what are you doing for those 11 other months or two other years in between your next show? Right, right. And if they don't move enough, then they might not, they might not even get back to you. <laughs> yeah, or they die, or they go out of business, or they don't pay you, or they damage your paintings and return them damaged, or, you know, there's a, there's a lot of things that go sure. wrong. And, you know, I was showing in New York, and, and the other people were, like, suing the guy because they weren't even getting paid, and I didn't even know about that, but... You know, it's a really, it's a very complicated thing. If Look, if you're lucky enough to know a dealer and you're really comfortable with them and you guys can can work together and, and you know, have a whole lifetime of success, that is great. But that is very, that's extremely unusual. Well, and before we wrap up, um, just remind everybody, where can they find you on, on social media and where's the best places to see what you're doing, you know, on the regular? Probably just, you know, Mitchell Johnson artist on Instagram. That's where uh, I sort of put things day to day. I don't really update my website. I just have a bunch of things there, but it's not, um, I don't update it anymore because anybody who really wants to, to get a painting, they, they send me an email and then we talk to each other that way. All right. All right. Well, again, thanks so much uh, for, for talking to me all about your work. I think, again, things like color and architecture are things that I could talk to people about all day. So, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was nice talking to you, David. And I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts and good luck with your work. Thank you. Thanks once again to Mitchell for joining me. If you enjoyed this episode or want to see his work or check more of it out, be sure and visit his Facebook page, Mitchell Johnson Studio. You can, of course, find his Instagram at Mitchell underscore Johnson underscore artist. And, of course, his website is MitchellJohnson.com. Just another reminder that Mitchell has a new exhibition of paintings opening up in Menlo Park. The show runs February 7th through the 24th. If you want to find out information about visiting the gallery or hours, go to Mitchell underscore Johnson underscore artist on Instagram. And you can also receive a free PDF catalog if you contact him there. So be sure and do that. You get a free PDF catalog of the work. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please visit studiobreak.com and check out some of the other episodes that you might have missed out on. Again, we've been going for nine years. we got plenty of episodes archived on Studio Break. And, of course, we have images of the artist's artwork linked to their website so you can find out more about them. So check it out. Peruse. Once again, we are excited to let you know that we are available on a couple of other different formats now. We've been available on Apple Podcasts, but now we are on Spotify and Google Play. So be sure and check us out on those platforms if you like listening there. If you really enjoy the podcast, you could do us a huge solid and leave us some positive reviews on those platforms. It would be greatly appreciated and you earn some karma points to boot. Can, of course, follow Studio Break in a number of social media formats, so be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram at Studio underscore Break and, of course, on Twitter at Studio Break. 
Let me thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his artwork at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my paintings, please check them out. Of course, you can find me in a number of places, including Facebook, on Instagram, at David Linaway, and on Twitter, at David Linaway. You can also see some of my more recent paintings on DavidLinaway.com, so be sure and check them out there as well. If you made it this far, thanks so much for listening. We hope you really enjoyed the interview with Mitchell talking about his work today. And, of course, be sure and stay tuned for more. There's plenty more coming. So thanks again for listening. We'll talk to you real soon.